Hello, my name is Pavel Pogoszelski, cinematographer of Boa is Afraid, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Pavel Porgazelski, the cinematographer of Bo is Afraid. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. It's definitely one of the strangest things I've ever seen. I think even on Instagram, I said, um, you know, after I got out of the film, I was like, I don't did I don't even know what I saw. <laughs> I have no idea what I saw. But I was entertained for sure. And it's a long movie. And I'm not the biggest fan of long movies, as some of you guys may know. But I was entertained from first frame to last. And it certainly is one of those movies that sticks with you. So uh, I cannot be more thankful to have Pavel back on the show to talk about it. Sponsored by Sony Cine. For the month of May, Sony is offering special financing on their entire cinema line and extended financing on the Venice and Venice 2 cameras. Visit SonyCine.com for more details. All things Go Creative Show at GoCreativeShow.com. And of course, don't forget to follow us on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And with that, let's jump right in to our interview with Pavel Porgazelski, the cinematographer of Bo is Afraid. So I'm here with Pavel Porgazelski, the director of photography for Bo is Afraid. This is your return appearance. You've definitely been on, I think you've definitely been on once before for nobody. I'm pretty sure I had you on for Hereditary too. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Ari Aster. I'm a huge fan of you and all the movies. So it's it's only fitting that you come back for Bo is Afraid. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I was really happy when, uh, you, when I heard from you because I remember having a blast. Uh, last time. So the stakes are high, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if we can deliver. Well, the stakes yeah. were high for you. I mean, talk about high stakes. Coming out of Hereditary, Midsommar, and then now doing something that is so different, so challenging. It's just so like confusing kind of in a way. Like, I, I, I don't think I've ever left a movie wondering so much like, what happened? Did I like it? Did I not like it? Did I even see the movie? It's, it was just, it was the most wild ride I've ever had in, in cinema for me. Um, and I'm just curious from your perspective, like knowing, well, how was this film pitched to you? That's, that's my biggest question because, you know, you look online and you're like, if you type in Bo is afraid, chances are what's going to come up after it is, what is it about? <laughs> that seems to be like the Google search that everybody has. And I'd love to know from your perspective, how was this, how was this project pitched to you? To me, it was pitched uh, as a 21st century Homer's Odyssey. Mm. Uh, as a Greek tragedy. Um it is, you know, the Greek tragedy, the, the son and the mother have always a very close bond. Um, uh, and I loved Homer's Odyssey, which I read as a teenager. Um, and that's that was that was the pitch for me. And knowing Ari Aster, I know his dark humor and I love his dark humor. Uh, so reading the script, it made me it made me laugh with all this um crazy, crazy things that keep happening to Bo uh, out of this world. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it is a very difficult movie to watch. I actually saw it yesterday in the theater. Uh, I went with my with, with my camera crew here in uh, Nashville um, to go see it. What was your reaction to it now? Like, you know, enough time has passed since you've made it so how did you take it in when you saw it uh my stomach was uneasy <laughs> <laughs> i felt a little depressed uh a little sad um yeah I, I i'm not gonna deny that it's a difficult movie to watch um and it's uh i i don't want to I don't want to spoil or say what I think about it, but I will say that it took me a long time to put all the puzzles together, you know, work with Ari 
uh for for a long time i was debating him like why is this in like it's such a repetitive beat or like this is you know this is his hero's journey it this shouldn't be in there and and ari kept like having his arguments that were very good uh so you must have a good relationship with him if you're able to kind of you know make your make your feelings heard and and let him know that you feel like maybe something doesn't make the most sense like that's that's a great oh, yeah. working relationship yeah 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 i i, I want to try to understand you know also the movie as much as i can um and then i uh, some things i understood in the di when we're like finishing the movie so after i've read it many times and watched it and shot it uh, and then watched it in the di and seeing then the last session just last session of di watching the whole movie giving the last few notes before we leave and i was like oh i understand this beat that i was always fighting him brilliant brilliant you know so there's like a, a um you know, there's a lot to take. There's a lot to take uh, in it. And it's just like a, a, a journey. I think, I think, you know, for me, it's about courage and accountability. Uh, you know, and it's, to me, it's such a beautiful journey. It's also about being scared. <laughs> and being an an anxiety-ridden, which I think is yes. something that a lot of people can connect to. I mean, if there's anything in this film that just a, a large swath of humanity can relate to, it's the idea of having extreme anxiety. And I'd love to talk to you about the way that you portray anxiety in the cinematography. There's a couple things that I kind of noted and saw and felt like it was a portrayal of anxiety to me. But I'm curious what you did on the cinematography front by way of cameras, you know, camera motion, lenses, lighting. Like, how do you portray this extreme anxiety in cinematography? Good question. I think it's, I think it's all, like uh, the first thought that came to me uh, was like by 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 shooting with a lot of anxiety because we weren't able to make the days. So <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, on the day, we were just both are in our anxiety ridden, like, oh my God, we can't make this day. It's so crazy. Uh, and I remember uh, just uh, after two weeks or three weeks being, man, Ari, like, there's like no time to be creative. All I do is light his face and all right, let's go and put a light on Joaquin's face and all right, let's go. And he came up to and his response was like, yeah, that's what I do. I'm like, all right, let's get one good take and let's move on. And I'm not getting any safeties. Like, I feel the same. I'm like, okay, cool. At least we're in this together. We feel the same way. So uh, it was just survival mode. Um, but I think in, in prep, he comes, he comes uh, like I said it before, uh, very prepared uh, on how he wants the 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 shot list to be made. And I think uh, I've noticed yesterday there's some of the movements where the, where the camera was shaking and that we we maybe didn't necessarily plan for that, but it really worked with like that. Some of them were like, you know, we had like drills up to the camera to make it really vibrate and shake. Mm. Some of them were like movements that we planned, we wanted to start doing technocrane so they're really smooth. And then that was impossible. Then we had like two guys running with the remote head and it had a bit of vibration to it, but we're like, oh, this is actually quite nice for the scene. Uh, what scene are you talking about? Uh, uh, this is the one where, where he's running into the store. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. If, yeah, and then we go through all these people and then we go inside and he drinks the water. Uh, either it was, a, it was a really big move across the street inside the store and then all the way back to store to over the shoulder shoulder of the the guy who's selling it. We're first, we're, oh, we're going to do a technocrane and then we put it in the track and it wasn't fast enough and it was it was just impossible to do it that way. So we ended up trying that way of building a ramp uh, for, for the two guys to run in uh, to the store. Uh, and, and, and it was embracing that little bit of vibration, I think, helped. Uh, yeah, because I, there's I so think, much chaos everywhere yeah, else. A little yeah. bit of shake in the camera ended up working out well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just creating the light. I don't know. 
I don't know what what gives the anxiety. I feel like it's well, the is performance. Well, there's something in the framing. Well, certainly the performance. But let me give you an example of something that I saw that felt yeah. like you were creating some sense of anxiety. The very opening of the movie, when you're in the therapist's office, it seems as though the moment that Bo is uh, faced with that question of like, do you sometimes wish your mother is dead or whatever that, I don't remember the line verbatim, but he's yeah. sort of asked like, do you wish she's dead? You immediately snap out to a shot where the therapist seems gigantic in the frame and yeah. he seems little teeny, teeny, tiny. And yeah. right away from that very first shot or when that shot comes into the frame, which is you know relatively soon in the movie, it's only like a couple of minutes in, you realize that this guy is going to, like you understand Bo is afraid. You understand the idea of Bo is afraid from that very first shot. And that was something that I thought was really interesting is just your use of framing to make him feel small, feel overwhelmed, feel kind of shy and sheepish. I think it really lended a lot to his character and kind of gave you an insight as to perhaps what you might see moving forward. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, actually, <laughs> I actually saw that yesterday and I was like, oh shit, that worked. Uh, that was kind of cool. And I, I don't know why I, before I was like, Oh, I don't really like that shot. And yesterday in the context of just sitting and watching a movie, I'm like, Whoa, that's really cool. It, when you snap out and it, it works, it's really an aesthetic gut feeling that you, when you're on set, you're like, okay, a bit further back, a bit more like this, this lens. And it's really just a gut feeling that like, this is right. It's not. Uh, it's written like medium wide, probably over shoulder. Uh, but then with Ari, it's always we're there with the lens and like, okay, let's. It's a gut feeling of it should be this. This feels right. This feels aesthetically good. Are a lot of your decisions made kind of in the moment? It's a lot of prep. No, uh, it's a lot of prep, and a lot of it is uh, you know like the next scene when he's walking to that street. Uh, with all these people and then we're trying to make him jump. Uh, you know, like that was uh, prepped, rehearsed lens. We had the lens. We knew exactly where the track of the Technocrine is going to go. A lot of it is, uh, uh, no, you know, even all the forest stuff, we'd be there three hours before each day before the shooting call and block everything and lens it up. And so then, because it's, we have so much to do each day that we just execute. Yeah. Talk to me about the lens package that you had. I read this really great article. I think it was for, I think it was for Panavision, where it was you and your, your AC were talking yeah. to the interviewer about your, um, you know, the decisions that were made as far as what lenses you were going to use, what kind of adjustments you were making to them to fit. And I also thought it was sort of interesting, the selection of lenses you have. It looks like it spanned from like a 17 to a 50. Like you really were very wide with your lens selection in this film. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, the lenses you chose and why. It's always a, a, a testing process and uh, every movie. I, uh, I did a similar process where I have, um, so I read the script, I interview for the movie. Uh, and then if once I get the movie, I go start looking for what the movie should look like with the director. What do we feel? And we start sending some, she or he will send me uh, some photo references. And then we finally find the look, you know, with Ari, we were doing, uh, I think real window and some some of those like Hitchcockian uh, uh, three strip Technicolor look just as a reference. We didn't want to emulate it, but just like oh, this is a good reference uh, for for a look. So then I send that to uh, Brian Mills, who is also in that interview, who is the lens guru with Dan Sasaki uh, at Panavision, and then he will have suggestions of what lenses would be best for that. But then I go to Panavision and test out uh, with uh, all the bodies like the LF, Alex LF, Sony Venice, uh, uh, Raptors, uh, uh, DXL2, all the digital cameras that are out there and a, a whole bunch of lenses, the ones that he suggests and more. Like we knew that we didn't want to go anamorphic, so we 
take away the anamorphic lenses and just all the spherical lenses that he can suggest and some that he might think aren't good but just so we know uh and then we always have the primos because i've used them so much as uh just as a grounding like okay this is what a primo looks good just so we have a reference to refresh the palate almost like a sip of water when you're tasting wine um and then we'd watch that with ari and and you know we it's a long it's almost like it's like 45 minutes to an hour of all these different lenses and uh uh, with different bodies uh, and like a day setup and night setup lighting and then we feel one that's like oh this is somehow this feels the closest to what we wanted the movie to look like and then from there uh, once we choose that this body this camera uh, camera body with this lens uh, then we go on to create a lot uh, with the colorist um, Meanwhile, Brian Mills will start uh, modifying the lenses because then we'll be like Ari and I would be like, yeah, we want it to be a little softer uh, on the faces. We want the blacks to be just lift. Just we'll just tell them things that we want the lenses to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe the colors to be a bit sharper. So it's just whatever it is that we want the, the little tuning and then he'll start tuning it. And then we'll do another series of tests with the LUT and keep adjusting things and until it's right. Yeah. And I think this film has so many different looks. I mean, you kind of have your, it, it, it's a long film. It spans kind of a natural world, but then also these sort of surreal worlds. There's a whole animated sequence in the middle. Uh, well, partially animated. Um, so there's a lot of looks within this film. And I'm curious to hear from you, how knowing that you're going to be having all these different looks, how do you tell a cohesive visual story in cinematography with so many of these different looks? I, yeah, for me, it was keeping that same light, the same lenses and the same camera. And it was just being in the world and, and changing uh, consciously the feeling of each world was, you know, like uh, Grayson Rogers always wanted to be warmer and more sunny and uh a bit brighter and uh the forest the children of forest is all almost all night uh um so it had this kind of a more neutral look a bit because we're going into this dream uh it was all done in the camera with the lighting uh with with what we wanted to achieve uh in each each story but then to keep the co cohesiveness uh it was with keeping the same that same lenses same camera package so it stays looking the same the lenses don't change yeah i'm actually really surprised to hear that especially the lut i i'm very surprised to hear that because the looks are so distinctly different but they do they do all feel like they feel cohesive in the over the course of the film but even when you're looking at like stills if you just you know, go online and search Bo is Afraid Stills. You see so many different looks and you're thinking like, is this all the same movie? How can it be? <laughs> How can it yeah. be? So I think you guys did a really good job of almost like subliminally aligning the shots so that they all felt cohesive because just taking snapshots of it, they really do feel very different. And I'd love to hear from you what your favorite of, or perhaps even the most challenging to achieve of all the looks. So like to me, I'm thinking, we have his city apartment, which is probably the most natural looking. It just seems the most, you know, daylight lit, um, it, it soft. It's just kind of natural. The colors aren't super bright. Everything's a little bit muted. Um, then you go to the suburban. Then you go to the kind of nighttime with the with the play on stage. Transform into his dream sequence, which I think is a dream. Who knows? <laughs> that big animated sequence. And then yeah. you go back to the mother's house. So- you have so many different looks there. Um, is there one that was particularly a favorite for you or maybe even particularly challenging to do? I think the one I was the most scared of was uh, uh, the forest. And I think uh, that's, the, that's the one that I'm the most proud of. Uh, I think the gaffer, Marco uh, Vendito, was absolutely amazing. 
um, because uh, we shot that in the middle of the summer or end of the summer, July or August, August, I think August. Uh, so the forest canopy was full, full bloom. So nothing could come from up above. Uh, no condors. We had a condor. Uh, I think like through my request, like, oh, I think I need a condor. There's a little little gap there. I think it'll do something. It did nothing. Uh, <laughs> absolutely nothing. It was pointless. And we had like, I think two Dinos, two like 24, 12,000, 24,000 watt lamps. It did nothing. Uh, and so we, we had, I think like 10, 5Ks, two, two 12Ks around the forest that we kept moving to pump light into the forest without it feeling like it was just so hard without, you know, you have so many trees not to feel like, you know, when you have a light right next to one, the, the first one will be super bright and then it falls off just to hide them. So you don't feel the source sourcing this with all these camera moves and, you know, them moving through this forest. It was, uh, it was super, super difficult. Plus um, I shot the movie at 320 ISO. Because uh, um, in the tests, I found out that blacks were much richer and softer, creamier that way, uh, which is something I wanted for the movie. So I needed a lot of light in a place where it was very hard to get light into. So it was very, very challenging. Uh, and yeah, they, that, that crew worked so hard at night just to keep moving the lamps and keep you know, the little spot over there, I need a little bit over here and I need a little bit over there, but it needs to come from far away because uh, otherwise I feel it and they're, they're just amazing. Uh, I think they, yeah, that, that when he starts running away, I was like, that was so hard to light, uh, you know, from from Jeeves firing at, at him and like, let's light all that forest, but you can't come from up above. You can't come from behind because you see it and you can't come from behind camera. So do shadows. It, it was, yeah, it, it was tricky to figure it out. It's also nighttime. So it's like, how much light can you really have in there? I mean, realistically, yeah, it has yeah. to be dark. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a tricky one and, and, and I'm proud of it. What else was I? Um, I really like how the ending uh, came up, you know, like the the big arena, the big arena. Was yeah, cool. Yeah, it was really cool. One of my favorites was definitely that cru the cruise ship scenes. I just loved it. I loved how po just colorful and bright and like shiny and weird that whole sequence was. We actually have a question from one of our listeners, uh, Fabrizio Diaz, wanted to know how you got consistent sunlight without a double shadow on the cruise ship and pool scenes. Um, do you have an answer for that? Like what, what were your, you know, what were your thoughts? How did you achieve that whole sequence? Well, uh, that whole sequence was our first array into uh, LED screens. Mm. So the cruise ship was on an LED screen. And then, uh, uh, so the sun was at 24K. Uh, big Sun 24K. And uh, it's funny, they kept saying, oh, with these LEDs, you know, doesn't matter. You can light towards them and it won't make the image softer. And I was like, nope, we had to, ha a lot of gripping had to go to keep them, you know, nice and sharp. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, that was a, a heavy prep also just to get, that ready, those sets ready and tested because we've never done it. Uh, and we had no idea. And obviously it was like during COVID or just, you know, I, it was still during COVID uh, 2021, summer of 21. So no cruise ships, usually cruise ships come to Montreal, um, but there are no ships they are all in the South. Uh, and there's no way we could fly the whole crew just to the south for 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 a day or two of shooting. I think it was a day of shooting, day of shooting. So that was the the, the only option, and uh, it kind of worked out. I thought it, it worked out cool, as in like it having this. I don't know this odd look, you know, yeah. this very saturated odd look, dreamy. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it was. It, it's it, it has such a unique look to it, and I think it, throughout the whole movie, you're always thinking: Is this happening? Is it not? Is it a dream? Is it a memory? Is it, is it real life? You never really know. So I think you were able to push the boundaries on that quite a bit, and I feel like that scene, you know, it's a memory because he is, you know, a younger version of himself. So that one is one of the few times where you're for sure this is not happening yeah. right now. This is a memory, and I think you guys kind of took the opposite approach. It's almost like you brought the realism to the more bizarre stuff and the surrealism to the stuff that was grounded in what felt like a real reality. So that was kind of a, a cool choice. Um, what was your experience on the array? You said this was your first time. You had mentioned a moment ago something about like having difficulty with getting the sharpness that you wanted. Could you just elaborate on that well, a little the more? Sh uh, the sharpness of the blacks. Yeah, and not the image, but the sharpness of like, you, you know, like, um, if you do rear projection, uh, you have to really protect the the screen from any light leaks. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it you know it, the, the image is, and on the LEDs, it's not as crucial. But I did, uh, it, I did notice that like you did, you still wanted because in the prep, the, uh, the people that worked there were like, no, no, you don't need to worry about you know the LEDs. You can put light towards it and it won't do anything. And I turn on lights and I'm like, man, this does affect the screens. Like I need to start taking it away to get a cleaner image, a sharper image. Oh, I, not, okay. not a, a sharper blacks, uh, not polluted. I see what yeah. you mean. So your front lights heading, yeah. you know, aiming toward the screen was sort of, you know, I, I can't even think of the right word, but I know it, adding some exposure to those, to that screen. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely far better than a rear projection, but it's far better. That's, yeah. That's it's, interesting. So you had to really yeah. think about still trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess like block exactly. the light going yeah. to that, to that wall. Yeah. Well, that's cool. But overall, just fairly good experience. I mean, a lot of people now, the technology is such that it's sort of, um, it's getting, it's still very expensive, but it's getting to the point where production companies like mine and, you know, commercials can use it now. And it's, it's getting to a point where, um, you know, other production companies can actually start utilizing this technology. So it's still fairly new, but I'm always interested when people like yourself at, you know, the level of cinematography that you do experience it for the first time and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, uh, it, 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 I think it's really having a good team that can explain to you the whole process and take you is very important. Um, I think the, the, the people that we've worked with uh, ended up doing a great job, but they were also in the newer stages of doing it. Um, so they were lacking experience of how do I walk the director and the DP who's never walked through this? How do we take him through this? I think that's, you know, like, uh, it's very helpful to be like, uh, okay, now we set the ship. What do you want? Because we built everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, so where is the pool? Where do they sit? You know, and then it's like, wait, but, you know, and we, it, it was just like, wait, let's go see that. Let's go see this. You know, like I, there's a bit of structure missing, like when everything can go anywhere and, you know, look at anything like, where's the sun? It's like, well, they could have said like, the sun could be anywhere you want. Hold on. Let's do this. Right. So yeah. I think it's uh, 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 important to, for that to be very structured because you can get lost quickly uh, and suddenly two hours have passed and that's the time you had and you haven't made any big decisions for them to move on. Uh, you know, because you'll then see them in three weeks and, the three, you know, three weeks have passed on. They have moved on on things and you come back and you have two hours to give notes. Um, so that was like uh, 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 an interesting process of like, okay, wait, these sessions are super, super precious. We need to really know how to maximize them. That's where, uh, that's where we felt like, oh, we don't know. We didn't have a, a proper support how to maximize that short time we had uh, with the engineers that were building these sets in the re in virtual world. It's almost like you need you need barriers for efficiency yeah. sometimes. Like yeah. when anything can be anything, it's like oh my god, yeah. this, this nothing's going to get done because it's yeah. just 
it's almost stressful with how much opportunity you have. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. Other, you know, you go to a location, it's like, it is what it is. The sun is where it is. You just have to adapt to it. But being able to control everything does open you up to, I don't know, like inefficiencies, I think. It's a different way of thinking. I haven't experienced yeah. it yet, but I've done a bunch of tours at a place close by to where um, where our studio is. And every time I leave, I'm like, oh my God, like the possibilities are endless, which is kind of stressful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, okay, well, I want the sun. I knew how each scene wanted to look. First one, I wanted to be more like noon and then the dessert was more orangey. So, but then like, okay, we bring the sun on this side. Ah. Oh. But now all these things look terrible in the background. I don't want them to look terrible. Let's move the sun on the other side. Let's flip everyone. Let's see how that looks like. Okay, that's good. But now these reflective things, let's get rid of them. Okay, let's, okay. So it was just like, yeah, it's very interesting. But it's easy to be like, let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of this. Put the sun there. It's going to look good. <laughs> what camera did you ultimately choose to film Boa's Afraid with? The Sony Venice. It was a very close call between the uh, Alexa LF and the Sony uh, Venice. You had a question? No, I, I was just curious what you tested against and how you ended up choosing the Sony Venice. What was it about it? Yeah, so uh, it, it was a Sony Venice, uh, the Raptor, uh, the Red Raptor, which I think I think is uh, Red's best camera yet, the Raptor, Raptor V. Yeah, Raptor 5, I think. Uh, and the Raptor, DXL2, uh, Sony Venice, and Alexa LF. I think I did the Mini, maybe, or the, I can't remember. I think it was all uh, large format. But yeah, because Ari wanted large format lenses after Midsommar. Uh, and the Alexa and the uh, Sony were quite... Uh, Comparable when I sent the test, uh, I, I really don't like the Sony the way it comes. You know, if you use the Rec 709 or whatever, the way it comes out, it's really not elegant to me. But once I sent it to the colorist and he started playing with it, he's like, oh, it's, do, do you have as much information as the 11? You can, uh, you can bring it close. And the reason I asked him to to test that is the the Venice has the Rialto, mm. that little uh, you know can unplug uh, the sensor and put the camera, and then you just have a wire going to the body somewhere. And I think we've used that uh, quite a lot in this movie, where uh, you know moving a wall would take uh, eighty minutes, forty minutes to take off and bring back on having a Rialto was 10 minutes, you know, like let's put the Rialto on lens shoot. Uh, and we had a lot, a lot of those instances in the bathtub, uh, some operating, uh, when, when he's up, a lot of operating moments that it was just easier holding a lens almost and running around. Uh, yeah, we just used it so much and I knew we would use it. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't realize how much we've used it. I was like, oh my God, we almost use it every day. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that Rialto essentially allows you to, I mean, I haven't used it personally, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it. And it it seems as though it allows you to just basically take what essentially is the sensor and the lens and separate it from the camera, yeah. making your camera the computer, teeny, yeah. teeny, tiny. So it's like, you're still connected by a cable, but it makes the... The unit, like when you say you don't have to move a wall, uh, you can fit that camera in such small places because it's basically like the size of a DSLR all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the grip would carry the backpack or the operator. We, we had the camera like set on the backpack. So you just put it on and oh, as cool. a backpack. And there you had just this little camera, you know, roaming around. So that was really cool for a lot of instances. And all of the controls are the same. I'm guessing. Like, does it? Are there any limitations that you face by separating it out into that Rialto package? No, just a, just the time that it takes to change it to the Rialto, which 
my guy, uh, my crew was super fast. They kept saying 15 minutes, but it was more like seven minutes. They were ready. That's the trick. You always yeah. you always say it's going to take me 15 minutes when it really takes you 10. That's why everyone's like, oh, nice. That was faster yeah. than I thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's always like, even though you know it's not going to be like, it's not going to be 15 minutes. Like, yeah, 15 minutes. Like, okay, fine. I'll be waiting 15 minutes and seven minutes to come in. I'm ready. Like, yes, nice. Yeah. <laughs> was it the Venice or the Venice 2? The Venice. Was, I, I don't think the 2 came out, out at the time. Yet. Or was just coming out and very, not very accessible. I think it was like, I can't remember, but I think, I don't think it was coming out. Was there something about the Venice, like you had said earlier in this interview, one of the ways you kept consistency across all the different looks of the film was by having the same lens package, the same camera package, the same LUT. Was there something about the Venice that allowed you to stretch the image as far as you did from the night black, black, black of the forest to the super hyper surreal, colorful, bright cruise ship scenes? Was there something about the Venice that allowed you to do that that maybe the other cameras hadn't? I think they can all do pretty much the same. Uh, I think uh, um, they all have slightly the you know, once you go on the DI, you can bring them to look the same. Uh, the color scientists will just create a different LUT. Uh, probably the, the, the camera companies hate me saying this, but I think it's true. Like, you know, uh, if I had to mix a third body in and the Venice wasn't available and the LF was available, well, okay, I'll take the LF and it'll come in and uh, it works. Uh, yeah. How many cameras did you shoot this film on? So we had uh, 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 we had two two cameras the whole time, and I think there's a few um, scenes uh, that that we had to the 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 ending scene the trial we had three bodies two cameras the whole time on the trial on on uh, on Bo and on Mona and the lawyer. Uh, I think there was one more where we had three cameras. No, I think that was it. Yeah. So you're anywhere from two to three, depending on the scene. What is your relationship with your camera operators? Like you got a, you have a very good relationship with the director. It seems like you are creative peers. You can, you know, you can push each other in certain directions. You have a good rapport. Um, what is the relationship like with the camera operators? They're always different. We always, uh, I wish I could travel with the crew, uh, but we're always shooting in these different cities. Every movie is a different city, even for me, not even with, not just with Ari, but even for me. And then they're, they're we're in a different city for its tax incentives, for reasons, you know, that we want to be there. So the more I hire local people, the better it is for the movie, uh, the better it is for us. We can gain more uh, days of gears, more manpower to help us, uh, you know. Uh, so I try to local, hire uh, local people, uh, and I've been very fortunate to hire great local people. But for Bo's Afraid, we're shooting in Montreal, where I grew up and where I went to film school. And then after film school, I was idealizing that crew that I ended up hiring because they're the ones, there's like two crews that work with American movies that come into Montreal. And there, you know, a lot of, and there's crews that work on French Canadian TV and French Canadian movies. So they're very like, you know, this is the crew that does this, this is the crew. And I was like, oh man, like I'd do anything to work with these guys. They're like, you know, they're like the top. They work, they do the big movies in town. Uh, so I, I, when I came to Montreal, I was able to hire them. I think by that time it was their best boys that I hired, you know, it was the young and they were phenomenal. Uh, they were very, very excited uh, that we're coming. They're big Ari Aster fans. Uh, and, and there was, you know, uh, I remember reaching out to them in January of that year and it wasn't sure if the movie was going to happen in Montreal and they just kept, waiting they're like we're gonna we're hoping that it happens there and we're gonna wait 
so they passed on other big movies to wait to do ours. Nice, uh, and they were uh, uh, they were amazing. Uh, you know, as a for a camera operator, I I always have them an open. It's like an open relationship between me and Ari. Uh, for for or me and the director, like you can go and you know just let me know if something changes. So when I'm watching, I know like you're not just improvising, but you, you got this note from the director. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I have no issues with them talking to the director and uh, while I'm lighting or doing something else or, or, or the director go and talk to you directly. We got a good question from MarcusMaris.ro on Instagram, one of our listeners. Thank you for the question. He wants to know how the genre affects your decision as a DP and followed up that question with, is there one rule in horror you never break? What do you think? Huh. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't think I've approached these movies as horror films. Um, I've just approached every single one as a drama and looked how, uh, how to elevate, you know, each moment or what's the arc of lighting? What's the arc of, is there an arc in the cinematography? uh how, how does it evolve or change during the movie uh but there isn't you know uh there isn't uh like a, a rule or i don't say oh i'm making a movie for the horror genre like what's i just i, I do it just like every other movie where it's like what's what's this movie about where where are the beats what are the beats what's the what is yeah what is the arc that I can create with the cinematography cinematography and the, its language um you know like for the, the the note for 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 hereditary was let's make the darkest movie we can so that's okay let's try that and then uh for Midsommar let's make the brightest movie we can okay that was that was you know that's what we tried uh here it was just an odyssey so we're like let's just survive this this giant beast and let's try to do that um uh, you know so so there isn't like a for me there isn't a, a, a rule that i follow uh i just try to follow the script uh and the director um yeah in uh i read in an article that you were a um basically a science major in your late teens, you were studying a lot of sciences and kind of became almost disheartened by it a little bit um, just before your entry into filmmaking and cinematography. And I'd like to just kind of explore that for a moment with you because do you see, that, do you find a parallel between the study of sciences and the study of cinematographer, uh, stu uh, study of cinematography and filmmaking? Um, just curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I I studied sciences more because that's what all my peers were doing, all my friends uh, were doing, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was like six, 17, 18. But also, I knew that sciences weren't for me. I had a hard time understanding everything uh, or, or, or more like understanding how to... It's just a different way of, I guess, teaching and understanding. And I just realized that later on, like, oh, like I, I want to understand everything behind it. Not like this is the rule. And then if the rule does this and this, then that's like, yeah, but why is it a rule? Why is it? Yeah, I just needed to see the full picture. And it wasn't always explained the way that I could understand it and be able to play with it. Um, but I, I do think like uh, it helped a lot like especially doing physics uh, with lighting, you know, uh, understanding lighting, understanding, uh, you know, uh, object uh, lenses, understanding uh, camera movement or ref reflections, refractions. Uh, studying physics was very uh, helpful and I never thought about that. But, you know, now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, yeah, I understand these things because I did physics. Uh, yeah. Was there something about that that uh, that rule following 
in sciences or just having these blanket set of rules without questioning? Um, was there something that, you know, you'd said that it didn't really work for you there, but in cinematography, there's there are kind of these sets of rules too, where, you know, there is like the look of a network procedural or the feel of a horror film or the, the look of a comedy. There are quite a few cinematic rules and like how did your how did your you know feeling about sciences did that play into you the way that you are a cinematographer well that's a very good question never thought about that uh like do you just have kind of an instinctual feeling to identify a rule and then immediately break it for effect is there something about that in the way that you work I think it comes with a lot, a lot of practice. I think uh, like a a good jazz musician doesn't pick up a piano and start jazzing and uh, or a great guitarist uh, improvising. Mm. Uh, he he learns all the rules. He learns and then he knows the rules, and then he knows the rules so well that he knows where he can break them mm. and make them sound good uh and i think that's what i don't think i'm there yet but i think i know the rules and like okay like i can push them a little bit but i wish i could push them more still and be more ballsy uh with them i think there's room for that for for cinematographers to be more ballsy and more creative and uh pushing the rules uh, pushing the limits, uh, it's storytelling. It's our, you're the one creating the world. It could be whatever world you want. And yeah, shouldn't be afraid of it. I feel like the film industry is changing a little bit. I feel like movies like Always Afraid, um, you know, things that Ari Aster is doing, things that Robert Eggers is doing. Like the, the fact that these types of movies are being funded and supported and it's not just a complete like constant continuation of sequels and retelling the same story over over and over again there's a celebration of uniqueness going on right now that is kind of exciting to me as just a movie fan are you feeling that on your end yes i'm ex very excited that bo uh is afraid was able to get funded and made that Ari Aster's movies are able to be made. And I hope and wish this inspires people, other filmmakers to be creative with the stories they want to tell. And um, to, to not, not be like, I want to make a movie that is a mixture of this and this. No, make a movie that you want to make, make something that you want to share, that scares you to share. Uh, I think it's so, you know, like I try to every movie I do to be scared uh, and be petrified of failing uh, because it's, it's so challenging. And that makes it very exciting when you survive it. You're like, whoa, I, I did that and it's out there. And, and, and I, you know, Ari puts himself out there uh, What's what's so beautiful? It's his. I know it's his vision of. It, it's his heart and soul is poured in, uh, into these movies, uh, and and that's what's. Uh, I wish filmmakers um, go out and just really be vulnerable. I think we as human beings see that, you know, when someone is telling a story, and you know that. There's the artist is showing part of their soul, sharing something intimate and true with you. Because uh, that's not the case with the Marvel movies. No one is sharing anything with you. And as great of a spectacle as it is, you want to be connected. You want to be, you know, it's like watching a great piece of art that someone this is how they saw, like if we look, watching Impressionism, like they looked at that and they saw this, how did they see this? Like, whoa, that's so 
interesting that this is what they saw uh when they saw the sky when they saw you know the stars it, it, it just makes you wonder uh and, and and i'd love to see more of this wonder uh of of not knowing what a story is and it's fine not to know uh you know there are many books by camus that i had to pick up and read five times six times to understand then i finally understood and like wow this is profound and it had a profound effect on me to this day and uh yeah uh and i think there's more and more of those directors and brave people and i just wish even more because we are storytellers what we pass is very valuable right we are the shaman around the fireplace that are telling the stories for the next generation to pass on to the next generation information it's not just a story but the story encompasses information about us as human beings right uh that's what shaman did and that's how before there was writing information got passed on in some way this is what we're doing also with movies uh i'm sure they have some kind of cultural effect on the entire culture uh sub subconscious effect so i think we should take this with full responsibility awareness and create this with love and passion uh and be brave I love that. What a great note to end on. Pavel Porgazelski, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, Bo is Afraid is in theaters now. Or depending on when you're listening to this, it maybe it's maybe it's available all over the place by the time you listen to this interview. But regardless, go see the movie. Um, you you will be entertained for sure. And who knows? You're, I think you're going to come out of that movie different than you went in. <laughs> That's just kind of the way that it is. It's one of those films. And we are so happy that those types of films are being made and that you're out there making them. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, always a pleasure. All right, I want to thank Pavel Pogorzelski, cinematographer of Bo is Afraid, for coming on the podcast. I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. Uh, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app as well. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. If you want to know what's going on with me, and there's a lot going on, you can follow me at Ben Consoli on Instagram. Um, tons going on with the production company. We're releasing a whole bunch of new things, commercials, uh, videos. It's it's wild time here at BC Media Productions. And also, I'm in a band. Yes. Uh, after, you know, not performing music on stage or really anywhere for nearly almost 20 years or so, I'm back at it with a new project called Three Second Chances. Of course, if you've been following me, you've been seeing all of the posts on our music videos and silliness behind the scenes. It really is a fun project. So if you guys are interested and and uh, how I approach a musical project, there you go, threesecondchances.com. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you next time on the next episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>